Well, this has been quite a night. I could sure use a cup of coffee. Hey, what's the deal with decaf? How do they get the caffeine out of there? And then where does it go? Uh, more cereal? That's your third bowl today? You had it for breakfast and lunch. Hey, so what's the deal with brunch? I mean, if it's a combination of breakfast and lunch, how come there's no leper or no liner? <laughs> Do we have any Seinfeld fans out there? I know I wasn't old enough to watch that show when I was growing up, but I was introduced to it thanks to sitcom reruns, uh, and, and I fell in love with the show. It's situational comedy. If you know anything about Jerry Seinfeld, you know he's famous for, hey, what's the deal with, and what's the deal with airplanes? Ah, you know, you know Jerry Seinfeld, what's the deal? So my question for us this morning is, what's the deal with Easter? Why is it that that we make such a big deal out of Easter. We get new shirts, and ladies, you get new dresses for Easter Sunday. Why is it such a big deal? And I think if we were to ask a lot of people what the deal is, is they would be able to say something about Jesus. They might be able to say, well, it's when we celebrate, you know, Jesus and what he did. Uh, maybe they'd be able to say that he died on the cross, and some would even be able to say that he, he rose from the dead. But think about what a big deal it actually is. I mean, you think about the calendar, our, our entire calendar, history is divided by the birth and the, the death of one man, B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, celebrating the years since his resurrection. I mean, the entire earth divides their calendar by this one man. So what's the big deal? What's the big deal? As I said, some people might be able to talk about Jesus, how he was born, how he, he lived and he died and he rose from the dead. And, um, you know, we celebrate a great miracle on Easter Sunday. But I'll tell you, uh, I saw perhaps one of the greatest miracles this morning at 8.15 when some of the teenagers came to help set out eggs. Uh, if you know teenagers, you know that they're usually not up at 8.15 on a Sunday morning. But it was amazing. Uh, it, was, it was a great time, so thank you teenagers that came to serve, but we're here to celebrate the resurrection, and I think a lot of times, even if we know this story, even if you've been a follower of Jesus Christ for a long time, I think we fail to realize just how big of a deal this is. We fail to, to realize how immense the thing that we celebrate today is, that his death on the cross, what it accomplished, and the resurrection how big and how powerful this story is. And so this morning, whether you're hearing this for the first time or you've heard it a million times, I want us to stop and, and take a look at the story of the resurrection from a different perspective. And in order to do that, we're going to have to go all the way back to the beginning. I hear it's a very good place to start. Um, we're going to go back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. And you'll want to go ahead and pull out your bulletin as well. And you'll notice in your bulletin that on one side it's blank. And it doesn't mean that this sermon is pointless. Um, usually we have a spot for you to write down the points. But uh, today you're actually going to get to go back to when you were a little kid. And I'm going to encourage you to draw a picture in your bulletin. And so as we follow along, they'll put the pictures up here that we're supposed to be drawing. Uh, but I want us to see the power of the resurrection, the death of Jesus Christ, even those of us who say, you know what, I know the story, I know all the answers, because I think we fail to realize just how big of a deal this is. So what's the deal with Easter? Let's start in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit does, uh, contains seed. The, this food will be for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food, and so it was. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. Now, if you were to go back and you were to read the entire chapter of Genesis chapter 1, you'd see that there were six days where God creates, and on the seventh day, he rests. On the first day, he creates light, and at the end, it says, and it was good. On the second day, he separates the water below from the water above, and he creates the sky, and he says, it was, it was good. And then he creates dry land and plants, and at the end of every day of creation, he says, it's good. But when he gets to day six... He creates man and he says, it is very good. Because it was the pinnacle of his creation. It was the greatest thing that he had created by far. It was his most treasured possession. Now, how many of you are like me and at Christmas, you have gifts that you give your kids, but you save that best one for last? Like you don't start off with the best one. Well, this last year, we do something at Christmas. Our kids get three gifts um, and that's all they get because that's what Jesus got and you're no better than him. So uh, Jesus only got three gifts, you only get three gifts. And so usually it's like pajamas and then socks and underwear and then we have the big gift, you know, the one that they know is coming or that they're looking forward to. And this year, you'll see that we got our kids BB guns. Yeah, check out this guy. No squirrel is safe in our backyard with a face like that. So they got their BB guns. We had been watching a Christmas story, and their first question is, are we going to shoot our eye out? I was like, no, daddy's going to teach you how to be safe. Um, But we saved the best for last, and they were so excited that they got their BB guns. Uh, And it was a great time. And so God saves the best for last. And he says, it is very good because he is... Uh, he values and treasures humanity. And so in your outline, what I'd like for you to do is draw this, because we are, last time I checked, we're all humans here, uh, God and us, us representing humanity, but I actually want you to put your name on this side of the paper, and I want you to draw it just like this, just like this, that you would put your name and God in that picture. Because what we see in the following verses is that Adam and Eve have this special relationship. They get to walk in the garden with God. He desires relationship with them, and they desire relationship with him. And everything is perfect. In fact, everything is so perfect that Genesis 2.25 says that Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. Now, I know some of you in here, and I know you can't even say the word naked without being ashamed. They were naked walking before the Lord. Excuse me, some of you guys different parts of Texas, they were naked before the Lord, and they felt no shame. They walked with him, and they felt no shame. Everything was perfect. Everything was beautiful. In fact, everything was going so well, and then something happens. Something happens, and it breaks creation. It breaks all of creation 
in, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, God comes to them and he says, look, I, I have one command for you. I give you one command. There's one tree in the garden that I don't want you to eat from. Do you understand? One tree that I don't want you to eat from. Don't eat from that tree. For on the day you eat of it, you will die. And in fact, the Hebrew, the way that shows up, it says dying, you will die. It says death, death, right? So I'm sorry, but if there's a tree called death, death, I think I'm going to stay away from it. But they don't. They don't. And we see in Genesis chapter, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, that the serpent comes along and he tempts Adam and Eve. And they eat. They disobey God and they sin. And things break. They had one command. It's so simple. Easy to follow. And I know what you're thinking. Man, if it was me, I, I, I would have stayed away from that tree. Well, this past week, I was playing with my youngest daughter. She's two and a half. Her name's Evie. Uh, got some pictures of her. She's beautiful, isn't she? Look at that face. Uh, she's at the Capitol there. Her dress is being blown up by the air conditioner. Uh, and uh, we got another picture of her here. Uh, this one, she said, I'm Freddie like mommy. Um, so she got into mommy's lipstick on that one. But we go in the backyard. She loves being outside. And I had just cleaned up after the dog, but the dog got out and does what dogs do right after you clean up after them. He makes a nice, fresh pile. And so I said, Evie, there's one pile in the yard. Don't, don't go near the dog poop. What does she do? She runs to the back of the yard where the pile is, and she's going like this, trying to get over it. And then she goes like this, trying to jump over it. And guess what happens? If you have a two-year-old, you know how well they jump. Eventually, she steps in it. Gave her, gave her one command. Don't go near it. You got this whole 4,000 square foot backyard to play in. And she goes to the like six by six inch part of the yard and she steps in it. Adam and Eve here have stepped in it. And let me tell you, you and I, we've stepped in it. And if you're anything like me, you haven't just stepped in it, you're steeped in it. We are steeped in sin. And what comes next as God comes to Adam and Eve? He says, Guys, what have you done? Do you realize what you've done? Everything is going to change now. Our relationship is changed now because of your sin. And in fact, we see that everything in creation breaks because of the sin of Adam and Eve because they willfully rejected and disobeyed God's word and it creates this separation between them and God. And that's the next thing that I want you to draw on your outline is these lines of separation demonstrating that between us and God, There's this great separation, this great chasm. And God says, look, do you realize that everything's going to change now? Your relationships are going to change. Your work is going to change. Ladies, birth is going to be painful now. You're going to start aging. And eventually that aging is going to lead to you dying. Everything is broken. Weeds grow in the garden and in our personality. Creation groans with birth defects, diseases, and poverty. Cars break down. Computers freeze right in the middle of your big project. Hello? Anybody ever been there? We don't understand our spouses, our children, and our friends as well as they wish we would. Insects bite and swarm. Viruses attack and mutate. Vegetables rot. We suffer from heart disease, from cancer, from depression, from unhealthy attachments, from addictions to substances and food. And we develop these addictions and everything around us is broken because of our sin. I think so often we fail to realize just how good things were. 
This morning I was here setting out some of those eggs and I could hear the birds singing and they sounded so beautiful. But then I realized that that is probably just a sound bite masked by white noise of what they used to sound like in the garden. There, there is no picture, even worth a thousand words, no picture could capture the brilliant and vivid colors of a garden teeming with life and hope and joy that was there. The green that we see today, springtime is one of my favorite times when those buds start breaking open on the trees and you have that really bright green. Some of you guys are wearing that close to that color today. But that, that green that's only found in nature is nowhere near the verdant green that God originally created. And all of that changed because of us. Can you imagine life without fire ants and mosquitoes and allergies? Hello, I want to go back to that. But everything changed because of our sin. And I love the way Tim Keller says it uh, in his book, The Reason for God. He says this, he says, Human beings are so integral to the fabric of things that when human beings turn from God, the entire warp and woof of the world unraveled, disease, genetic disorders, famine, natural disasters, aging, and death itself are as much a result as sin as are oppression, war, crime, and violence. And so we see that sin is way bigger and way more powerful than we could ever imagine. It broke all of creation. Scripture tells us that all of creation groans under the weight of our sin. And I I know some of you are here and, and you think, man, well, I'm not that bad. I mean, my sin can't be that bad that it would break the entire fabric of the universe. I mean, I've never murdered someone, so I can't be that bad, right? Well, let's go look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 21. He says, You have heard it said uh, that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. Judgment here represents hell. Uh, And he says, But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother is subject to judgment. Ever been angry? Anybody? I guess I'm the only one. Okay, good. There's two of us. Excellent. Uh, But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, you fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. All right, now, I know if you were driving on I-35 or Mopac this week, I'm willing to bet that you probably said a few things worse than moron or fool, right? (laughs) I know it because I've lived it. You've been there. Right? And it's crazy how everyone going faster than you is a jerk and everyone going slower than you is an idiot, right? Uh, The only people you're happy with is you because you're the only good driver out there. And so we've all been there. We've all said it. We've all said these things. And Jesus says when you do that, when when you harbor that hatred, that anger inside of you, it's the same as wishing that person was dead. And it's no different. Our sin is such a big deal. It is such a big deal. And and the hard thing is that... uh, uh, that it separated us from God. And there is nothing we can do to overcome our sin. In fact, we know from Scripture that our sin, that God is a perfectly holy and just God, He's perfectly righteous, and that our sin deserves death. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I want to I put this picture up here of these lines going over the edge. Um, Stephen said, hey, McCoy Elementary School, it's a stone's throw from here. It's true, it's not that far, but I can tell you, if we were to go outside right now and each pick up a rock, 
And I said, we're going to have a competition to see who can hit McCoy Elementary School. What's our target? What's our goal? Hit McCoy Elementary School. And I can tell you, I might be able to throw it farther than some of you, and some of you might be able to throw it farther than me, but none of us are going to hit McCoy Elementary School with that rock. We are all going to fall short of our goal. This is what Romans 3.23 says. God's standard, his goal was perfection. And we've all blown it. Big or small, it doesn't matter. We all fall short of God's glory. And then we read this in Romans 6.23. It says, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. What's a wage? It's what you've earned. The Bible says that because of our sin, we have earned death. And if you would, go ahead in your, in your outline. If you would just draw that word, write that word death there at the bottom. Because everything, whether big or small, it doesn't matter because God is so perfectly holy. Every sin that we commit is a crime against him. And every single crime that we commit is a capital crime, deserving the death penalty, eternal separation from God. I believe, as I pointed to in Genesis, when it says dying, you will die. When it says death, death, I believe God is saying, hey, you're going to die spiritually. You're going to be separated from me. But it's also going to lead to your physical death. But here's the thing. God saw this situation. He saw Adam and Eve and he said, I know that there is no way they could spend the rest of their life trying to do good things to make up for what they've done. But there is nothing they can do that will ever make up for this. It must be punished. And so we read this in Genesis chapter 3. We read, the Lord God made clothing out of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. He says, look, I know you messed up, um, but, but I'm going to cover you. And so for the first time ever, death enters the world. And God brings an animal before Adam and Eve, and they've never seen anything like it. For the first time, something dies, and blood is spilled. God says, let this this be a covering for you. Be a covering for you. And he does the same thing for us. He realizes that none of us are ever going to be good enough. There's no amount of church services we can attend. There's no amount of money that we can give to the poor. There's no amount of nice things that we can do for someone else to ever make up for our sins. And so we read this in Romans 5.8. But God proves his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. God sends his son, Jesus Christ. He says, I know you can't pay this price. I know you could never do it. So I'm going to pay that price for you. I'm going to take your place. I love these verses from Isaiah. This is what we celebrated on Good Friday, is Jesus' death. These words were written 700 years before the time of Jesus Christ. It says, yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. That's peace with God that we now have. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned away to, to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. God has punished him. Jesus died for your sins. In fact, his last words on the cross were to telestai. It's a Greek word that means it is finished or paid in full. This word would be stamped. When you had a a debt that you owed and you made that last payment, you would get a piece of paper stamped to telestai, paid in full. And that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He paid for our sin in full. And I know some of you are thinking, well, how do I know? How do I know that this is 
This is the right way. And I'll tell you that the evidence is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The evidence is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, you know, I find it interesting that we always put a lot of emphasis on the cross, and that's a good thing. But the New Testament Christians, the early believers, their greatest emphasis was actually on the resurrection. Because here's the thing. You can take me outside, and I can say, I, Charlie Turner, am going to be nailed to a cross for your sins. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to nail me to a cross. It's going to be a bloody mess, and I'm going to die. And absolutely none of your sin will be covered. Because I'm not the sinless son of God, but Jesus was. And he proved that by rising again on the third day. And so the resurrection is a very important thing. In fact, we go to Acts chapter 1, verse 3, and we see that Jesus uh, continues appearing to his disciples, and it says that he gave many convincing proofs for 40 days of the resurrection. And those convincing proofs are proofs other than words. We know that Thomas got to touch him. We know that he ate breakfast with them. We know Peter, or Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that at one time he appeared to over 500 brothers. And Paul says some of them are still alive today. Go interview them. Go ask them what they saw, what they touched, what they heard. Jesus is risen. And so the, the resurrection becomes such a big deal. I want us to look at um, Acts chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 22. Uh, so this is the day of Pentecost. Jesus has now ascended. He's gone. He's resurrected, spends 40 days on the earth. He goes up to heaven. And he says, wait for the Holy Spirit. And so all the believers are together, and they're praying together. There's about 120 of them. They're praying together. And finally, the day comes on the day of Pentecost. And uh, it's this fantastic experience. And they run outside, and this stuff's happening, and they start praising God. And the funny thing is that all these people from all over the world who are there in Jerusalem can hear these Galileans, these uneducated men, speaking in their own language, speaking in their native language. And they say, how can these men, uneducated men from Galilee, speak all these different languages from around the world? How is it that we're hearing them? And so Peter preaches this sermon, and he tells them, Here, here's what's happening. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus the Nazarene was a man pointed out to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him just as you yourselves know. Now, let me stop there. These people had lived in and around Jerusalem. They had heard about Jesus. Now, if Jesus had not done the things that, he, that Scripture says he had done, at this point, the crowd would have shouted down Peter and probably picked up stones and stoned him. But they knew. They knew that Jesus had done miracles. They knew that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. They knew that he had healed the blind man. So they listened. It says, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan. Remember, God had a plan from the beginning. And foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus has ended the pains of death. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, where, O death, is your sting? Christ has overcome that. He's overcome that through the resurrection. And then we go on. Peter goes on and he uses some Old Testament prophecy to point them to the, to the reality of the resurrection. And he goes on in uh, verse 32. He says this, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 32. He says, God has resurrected this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he, is, he has been exalted at the right hand of God and re- has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out on what you see and hear. And so he says, look, Jesus is not dead. You can go to the tomb today. It's still empty. He's alive. And not only that, he's exalted at the right hand of power of God. 
So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you can know that your faith is in one who is risen and exalted. You can have a confident faith. And I love what happens in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 3, Peter heals a man who was born lame. And then the Pharisees and the religious leaders come to him and say, hey, we want to know how you did it. Tell us by whose power you did it. Now, I don't know about you, but if there's someone who can heal someone who was born lame, and I know that he was lame, I'm saying, hey, let's load up Aunt Betty, get everybody over here, let's get them all healed. I got my allergies working, let me get healed. I, I don't care how he does it, if he can do it. And that's one of the problems with religion, isn't it? But this is what Peter says. Peter goes on in chapter 4, and he says this, verses 9 and 10. He says, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to the disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, again, pointing to the resurrection, by him, this man is standing here before you healthy. And then he goes on in verse 12 and he says this, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people, and we must be saved by it. He says, look, Jesus is the only way. He is the only way for you to be saved. And I know this is hard for some of us to hear because there are a lot of people today that say, well, aren't there many paths to God? There have to be many paths to God. It's just not right to say that there's only one way. But there is. And, and let me just say this. I, I'm not trying to be mean or anything, but in, in my opinion, it is illogical to believe that there are many paths to God because if you just do a, a quick study of what these different paths believe, you realize very quickly that they're not all leading to the same place. And, and so you, you have to come to the conclusion that, that there can't be many paths to God, that there is only one path. And we realize that why is there no one else? Because there can't be anyone else. Jesus came from God, he paid for our sins, and rose from the dead and is now exalted in heaven. Where else would you go to find forgiveness and to find life and love? Imagine for just a moment, that you have a certain type of brain tumor and there is only one neurosurgeon in the world who can perform the surgery to remove it. Are you going to walk around saying, I can't believe, I'm not going to him. There's only one neurosurgeon. That guy's so arrogant to be the only one that can perform the surgery. I don't think so. You're going to say, thank God there's one. Thank God there's one that can perform that surgery and you're going to go to him for healing. That's exactly what we we do with Jesus Christ is that thank God there is one who died for the sins of the world. Many people, again, they, they try to find different paths. They try to find different paths to God. And, and let me tell you, just again, I, I have this cell phone in my pocket. And here's the crazy thing is um, my carrier has programmed this phone only to ring when a specific combination of numbers is punched. And you may say, you know what, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I'm going to try every combination known to man, and you're going to try every number combination known to man for the rest of your life trying to get in touch with me and make this phone ring. But guess what? This phone is never going to ring because there is only one number that will ring this phone. There's only one number that rings the phone in heaven that allows us to pass from death to life, and that is Jesus Christ. That is Jesus Christ. I want us to go back to 
Romans 5.8 that we talked about a little bit earlier. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I want us to see this, um, this cross. The next thing I want you to draw is the cross. Going across. Because Jesus has bridged that gap between us and God. And the next thing I want you to do is I want you to cross out death. Because through the power of the resurrection, Jesus has overcome death. He has overcome and he has provided a way for us. He has allowed us that availability for a relationship with our Father. For things to be restored. The payment is made. Justice has been satisfied. And again, I know there are some people who say, well, I just can't serve a God who says there's only one way. And and that's okay. Because you know what? I decided I'm going to stop believing in gravity because I can't dunk a basketball. So it's just not fair that I can't dunk a basketball, so I'm not going to believe in gravity anymore. Um, Because the only thing that I can dunk are Oreos and donuts. Um, See? So that's just not fair. And you see, you see very quickly when we apply the same logic that we do to other areas of life that some of these arguments just don't make sense and it becomes very clear very easily that Jesus is the only way. And let me also say this, if God had made it, if he had made multiple ways but never clearly spelled out which ones work and which ones don't, how good of a God do you think that would be that would leave us guessing for all our lives? about whether or not we happen to get on the right path. Or if he made it by works and then he never spelled out, this is the exact amount of good things you have to do, or this is the exact amount of money that you have to do, give in order to get in, how good of a God would leave us guessing of, have I been good enough? Have I done enough? Have I given enough? To me, that doesn't sound like a very good God. But the God that we read about in Scripture says, you know what? You could never pay that price, so I'm going to pay it for you. And all you have to do to receive that forgiveness is trust in me. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says this. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. I want to leave this up here for just a moment because there's a couple words that I want to explain. The first is grace. Grace simply means undeserved favor. It means we didn't deserve it. None of us did, yet God gives it to us. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us while we were still sinners. And it's through faith. Through faith. Very simply. Every single one of you is exercising a tremendous amount of faith right now. You are not using any of your own strength to hold yourself up off the floor. You're just resting in your chairs. You're just resting in your chairs, having faith that that chair that's in an elementary school is going to hold your bottom up off the floor. Just rest in it. That's exactly what God asks us to do in his son, Jesus Christ. Just rest in him. Come to the point where we realize that we can never make that payment on our own and just say, you know what? I trust that Jesus has made that payment for me. I'm resting in him. And then lastly, he says it's a gift. A gift is something that is freely given and freely received. If I give you a gift and you pay for it, it's not a gift. If I give you something and you trade me for it, it's not a gift. If I give you something and you come to my house and cut my grass as if I would let you, uh, if you're my neighbor, you know why that's funny, but you cut my grass and you work for it, then it's not a gift. A gift has to be freely given and freely received. And so God stands 
at the edge of all eternity says, here's the gift of my son, Jesus Christ, and you can be forgiven through him. And you can know that I've accepted the payment on behalf of your sin because I raised him from the dead. Will you receive that gift through faith? I want to put this last picture up. Demonstrating the movement from separation to God across the cross through faith and entering into relationship with God. It lets you know that that is available to every single one of you here this morning simply by saying, I recognize my sin and I know that I need a Savior. And I'm trusting in Jesus Christ alone as my Savior because he has risen from the dead. And he is the only one that can pay that penalty. And he has paid that penalty. Uh, Mark McMinn says this, and I know some, some of us get uncomfortable when we talk about sin, but I love this quote. He says, We wrongly assume that a vocabulary of sin leads to self-hate, discouragement, or depression. On the contrary, once we see ourselves as sinners, we can stop trying to earn God's favor and learn to rest in his arms. Would you learn to rest in his arms this morning? If you're here this morning and you, you say, I have I've never made that decision. I have never received that gift, but I want to. I'm going to be up front over here. My wife's going to be over here. Uh, One of our elders, Bill Gravel, will be in the back by our connections table. And Jason Dean will be in the back over here. And in just a moment, the worship team's going to come out, and they're going to play a song. And we want to give you a chance to respond. Would this be the morning that you respond? Because Jesus says this in John chapter 11. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, it says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who comes to me will live even if he dies. If he believes in me, though he dies, he will never die. Do you believe this? And the question is, do you believe that Jesus is the only one? That in him is eternal life? And that in him is the only way. Maybe you're here this morning and you've put your trust in Christ long ago. I hope this morning that you walk away with an, a renewed sense of how great the gift that we've received is. As the began, band begins to play, um, would you just stand with us and sing? And uh, again, if today is the day that you say, you know what, I have questions still, we welcome you with your questions. God welcomes you with your questions. But if you say today, I get it, I understand, and I want that forgiveness, and I'll put my trust in Christ and Christ alone, would you come and let us celebrate that with you? Or if you would just like to receive prayer, feel free to come. Come at this time as the band plays.